Those who are not of that age, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 4, and you can also put a finger in your Bible in John chapter 17. We're kind of going to be in both of those throughout today's message. I'm not going to necessarily read them ahead of time because we're going to kind of dive into them during the message. So this morning, we are talking about being unified in purpose and how that is a beautiful thing in a messy world. And so we are talking this entire year, and we started last week with a message to remind us that we are doing everything we do for Jesus Christ. And then we are looking at this year, this week, we're looking at the reality that we are tied together. And on the front of your bulletins, there's two different pictures, and one says working, and one says together. And it's all the people who have had their picture taken for the directory. There are some that did not, and so they, they had that choice. And so, But we're all working together. There's not one person that's better than the other. As the video says, you can take away the pastor, you can take away the staff, you can take away the commission directors, you can take away everything. The church will still stand because the church is you. And so when we say, well, I don't know about the church... Uh, what are we really saying? And see, I had to wrestle with that this past week because it is a beautiful thing to be unified. But how do we become unified in this world? And in John, the, the, the Gospels of John, in verse 13, or chapter 13, where Jesus is having his last meal with his, with his disciples, he reminds us. He doesn't say, People will come and know who you are by the small group that you attend. He does not say people will come and know who you are by perfect attendance on a Sunday a.m. worship service. No, what he says is people will come and they will know who you are by the love you have for one another. That's what he says. We want to make it about those other things and what those other things should be doing. And that's why we're starting connectional groups here because it's not that I think that, you know, if, if you say to somebody you're a part of a connectional group, they're all going to say, wow, we just want to know what you know and we want to we want to fall on our knees right now and accept Jesus. No, but I'm hoping, my prayer is, and I know Lois's prayer is, that it will help you to get to the point where you live a life in such a way that people say, I, I want what you got. I, I don't know what it is. You have a peace in the craziest of times. You have a group of people that care for you in the craziest of times. I want that. And then have the opportunity to lead them to Jesus. A guy by the name, it's a weird name, of Win Arn was a church consultant. He surveyed members of nearly thousands of churches asking the question, why does the church exist? Of the members surveyed, 89% said the church's purpose is to take care of my family and my needs. For many, the role of the pastor is simply to keep the sheep that are already in the pen happy and not lose too many of them. Only 11% said the purpose of the church is to win the world for Jesus Christ. Then, when this gentleman, church consultant, went to the pastors of the same churches, and he asked, why does the church exist? Amazingly, the, exalt, the results were exactly the opposite. 
Of the pastors surveyed, 90% of those pastors said the purpose of the church is to win the world. And 10% said it was to care for the needs of the members. Is it any wonder we have conflict and confusion and stagnation in so many churches? Nothing precedes purpose. The starting point for every church should be the question, why do we exist? Until we know what our church exists for, we will have no foundation, no motivation, no direction, and no unity. The early church knew why they existed, and they were unified about that purpose. Now the multitude of those who believed were not one of heart and soul, it says in Acts chapter 4. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. Jesus had enlisted these followers not to a life of leisure, but to a life of service. While each had a different task, they all had the same calling, to fulfill the great commission in their generation. They had one leader, Jesus. They had one purpose, to communicate the gospel to all people. These early disciples did more for the spread of Christianity than any generation of followers since. What was their secret? I mean, they didn't have church consultants back in the early church. They didn't have guys like Wynn Arn that came in and worked with your church board to figure out what's the purpose? Why are we existing? And yet they turned the world upside down for Jesus. And they served the same God to faith church services this morning. So do not give me the excuse that somehow God has changed. It's us that has changed. And why have we changed? Why have we settled for second best? In Acts chapter 4 in John 17, we're going to find out exactly what the secret was of the early church. And then, my hopes is, is that we walk out of here differently, looking at the church in a whole new different light. And it may be hard for you to look that way. You know why? Because like me, I've been in an EC church since before I was out of my mother's womb. I only know the way the church has been done by the EC church. You put me in another church, I'm as lost as anybody. That's a curse. And that's also a blessing. It's a curse because I don't like to be stretched. It's a blessing because my parents cared about me enough. But they didn't fall for excuses. They made me go. And so when I read articles about making your children go to church and how that's going to turn them off to church for the rest of their lives, I snicker. Because I was one that was made to go to church and here I am pastoring a church. Talk to me, author. Ask me in your little interview. Because I'm blessed by the fact that I did not have a choice. It didn't matter what time I came home on Saturday night. I was going to church, and guess what? We had an 8 o'clock service, and there was no choice. Brett, you can come home at midnight from putting out with your friends. That's okay. Now, 1 o'clock in the morning was a little stretch. But you're going to be up, and you're going to be ready at 7.30 to be at the 8 o'clock service, go to Sunday school. And if you fall asleep during church, teens, 
you will be taking a nap and not playing with your friends or on your, on, or on your video game controllers. Because if you're too tired to listen to the pastor's message, then you're too tired to do anything else. See, I got it all memorized. I heard it thousands of times growing up. I only had to get caught once by my dad sleeping in church. And I learned my lesson. The rest of the day would be spent in bed, taking a nap. And we didn't have, for my children, junior church back then either. There was no choice. And so we, there's something that has changed. And so point number one in your sermon outline, and it's your first blank, is this. They had unity in the church of God. Now that may not sound like rocket science, and like I said last week, some of these sermons that I'm going to be preaching in the next few weeks are not rocket science, but they're basics. And here's the problem. They're not rocket science, but we're not getting them. And when I say we, I mean we. I mean me. All right? So don't come out of here going, man, he was really tough on us today. No, I've been through it with myself in my office this week. I'm not getting it. I don't understand it. And so in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, these words are spoken. All the believers were united in heart and mind. And they felt what that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. All the believers shared in this unity. Not just the apostles, not just the leaders. All the believers were unified. There was a fundamental team spirit of love and purpose. To be one in heart and mind is to be unified in every fiber of their being. And because of that unification, we see three powerful points, which will be on the next slide. Here's the first one. Letter A. They were family in relationship. They were family in relationship. They shared the same spiritual Father, God Almighty. They shared a spiritual birth. They were born again into the family of God. A song that Bill and Gloria Gaither wrote describes the family relationship like this. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by His blood, joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this side. For I am part of the family The family of God. That's the desire that we have here at Faith Church. The desire I have, that's what I pray for. That we are family in relationship. I was once told this by by another pastor, and he he kind of put it this way. He said, you know, if you think about it as as a community, as a neighborhood, if you have a bad neighbor who's 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 a pain in your side, let's say. You know, he always mows six lines over when he mows, and he always makes fusses about your dog barking, and he always does all these dumb things that you just get so upset about. What can you do? Well, you can go out, and you can put a for sale sign right in front of your yard and say, I'm out of here. But you can't do that to family. Well, you shouldn't do that to family. Can you? And so when Jesus uses the word family and when God's word uses the word that we're a family of God, that we, that we come together as a family, there's a reason for that. We're just not neighbors. We're not something that you can throw a for sale sign up and move away from. 
oh, people have gotten good at it. That's not what it's about. We're family. We, we need to rub shoulders with each other even in the most difficult times. They were friends in fellowship. That's point number two, letter B. They were friends in fellowship. They shared their lives and their possessions with one another. It went beyond a kind word and a pat on the back. They gave priority to meeting the physical and practical needs that were evident in the community. Chuck Swindoll wrote these words, Churches need to be less like national shrines and more like bars. Less like untouchable cathedrals and more like well-used hospitals. Places to bleed in rather than monuments to look at. Places where you can take your mask off and let your hair down. Places where you can have your wounds dressed. The early disciples found that in their community of faith. They saw it and knew it. That's what God desires. It's not about a big cathedral. It's not about beautiful stained glass windows. It's not about all those things. It's about somebody comes in here who's bleeding because they've been beaten up by life. Are we going to bandage them? Or are we just going to say, it's great. Go ahead. God bless you. That's the question that we have to ask. Are we going to get dirty with them? Are we going to put our gloves on maybe to protect ourselves? But are we going to, are we going to do what we got to do and get our hands dirty? Or are we just going to give them a nice pat and say, you know, I really hope you get a band-aid for that cut. It's questions that I had asked this past week. And then let her see they were followers of Christ in partnership. They were followers of Christ in partnership. These men and women shared an enterprise together. They did not assemble merely for family gatherings or for making sure their physical needs were met. They came together in order to attain an objective. These men and women were partners in reaching the world for Christ. They linked arms, not just for their convenience and for their comfort and their support, but to reach out to those not yet linked up with them. You want to know, I, I came across this passage of Scripture this past week, and I sat in my office and I asked myself when I read that, that point, when I, when I thought of that point and I put it on paper, I said, I think I just found the reason why we don't do evangelism well. Because we don't link arms. And so when we go out and we try to share the faith and somebody comes up with some kind of argument that we don't know how to respond to, there's not a brother or sister standing next to us that are saying, it's okay. Let's walk through this. Let's not run. And so what happens is, is that we get in a conversation, somebody brings up a good point, and we get flustered, and what do we do? We turn our backs and we run away. And it's because it was never meant to be done alone. Christianity is not meant to be lived on an island. It's meant to be done where we link arms together. And so if one of us is getting beat up, the other ones of us are holding that person. It's where our brothers and sisters, we disagree with them wholeheartedly in the Jehovah Witness program. But they got something on us. 
you will not see one come up without the other. And usually there's one that comes up that knows more than the other does. Trust me, I got a professional Jehovah Witness bad, uh, badger down here in my wife. Me, on one hand, I lock the door and say, I, I, I really just don't even want to talk to him. Not my wife, man. She unlocks the door, throws the screen door open. Come on in, have coffee. Let's discuss. And all of a sudden, you watch the one say to the other, um, she's bringing up good points. And the other one tries to defend their point, and Michelle bashes that point using the Word of God, and all of a sudden, they're at the backs. Their backs are to our door, and they're out the door. Because they go together so that one doesn't get sucked in by something that isn't truth in their perspective. It's a point that we have to learn. I read this past week of a three-year-old girl that became lost in an open field with grass and weeds waist high. Once her family realized her predicament, they they frantically began searching for her. They called their family together and friends to help in the search. They went in all different directions searching for her, but to no avail. Finally, just before dusk of one of the, your child, of one of the, one of the children in the group offered a suggestion. What if we join hands and walk together up and down the field to see if that helps? Because of their limping, linking arms, the girl was found. The members of a church are a group of people from various backgrounds with different interests and different perspectives who have been called together for a purpose to link arms. That purpose is to cooperate together in reaching and beyond our walls go so others can know the love of Jesus. We are in living we are in a life-saving business that ende- that endeavors that that endeavors is accomplished best. That endeavor is accomplished best when we understand that we are a family of friends in partnership with each other. See, we have the life-saving news and somehow we think we have the other side of the news. I don't know about you, but I yearn for the day when I turn channel 69, 10 o'clock news on and it's all good news. It's not going to happen. Because we live in a broken world. There's always going to be shootings. There's always going to be murders. There's always going to be bad people. This place, we're different. We're able to take the life-saving news of Jesus Christ to a world who so desperately needs to hear it. If we so choose to link arms and do so. They experienced, next, they experienced the power of God. That should be number two, I believe. They experienced the power of God. The apostles testified prayerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Purpose of the power in the, in the engine of life. Purpose is the power of the, in the engine of life. Purpose assures us that, that the steering wheel is connected to the engine. Without purpose, there is a, a motion without emotion. I want you to understand that it's, it's so powerful that there's emotion without emotion. And that's what's happened a lot of times in, 
In our world, what happens is we get up on Sunday morning, and, 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 and if you're not careful, this is a temptation that all of us can fall into, and we're like, well, got to go to church today. Why? Don't know. Just got to go to church today. Because we are in motion without emotion. We, we do because we think we have to instead of because we want to take the life-changing good news of Jesus and be encouraged for the week. We do because we have to. My people ask a lot of times, well, how do you, why are you so passionate? I hope I never lose it. I've told people before, if I ever get up in a pulpit and feel like, I don't believe this, it's time to hang up the shoes, man. Because that's motion without emotion. That's just going through the, the jump, the hoops, to please someone. And that leads us to three powerful points. And here's the first one. The power was evidenced by the growth of the church. The power was evidenced by the growth of the church. In a matter of weeks, the church went from the upper room to every living room in Jerusalem. I want you to catch this just for one second. I want you to get this point. So they were meeting in the upper room. And in a matter of weeks... They went from meeting in the upper room to meeting in every living room in Jerusalem. That's huge. And because of that growth, we see the power that was in the growth. It's evident. And we can have that same power, not for church growth all the time, but we can. If we link arms together and if we say, I'm not going to try to do this on my own. If you look at the front of your bulletins today and, and you take a look at those, all those families that are there and, and people that are there and you, you see how we could work together, just take, just take your eyes one time and just cover up every picture but your own. All right? Cover up every picture that's on there but your own. And then say to yourself, how much can I do? I did this, by the way. Covered up every picture but our families. I thought it's a losing effort. I can't do much. Then just take the paper that you're covering it up with and move it down about four families. Say, how much can they do? If they were purposed to share the good news of Jesus. All of a sudden, it starts looking good. The light starts to shine. Candles start to open. Start to see, man, we could make this happen. And then take the paper and just remove it. Say, wow. If we all came together for the one purpose, for this one thing, man, we could make a dent. It's a powerful reminder. The power was also evidenced by their ability to withstand satanic attack. Let me tell you something. We don't like to talk about this so much because it's like evil and all that good stuff, bad stuff. 
but it's happening. He has not given up on destroying the church. He will put a bone across anybody's heart to get them mad so that they don't do the purposes that they're called to do so that the church is hurt. And one of the things that the early church did was they didn't stand for it. They told people, when you're part of this thing, here's the way it's going to be dealt with. We get so scared to say those things, but it's a reality that Satan is at work. As soon as the Spirit came upon that church, Satan touched, Satan launched a, tr- a ferocious counterattack. Pentecost was followed by persecution. Can you imagine it? The Holy Spirit shows up. People start talking in all different kinds of tongues and they understand each other. Great things are happening. And then all of a sudden you watch brothers and sisters die one after another. Hundreds. One after another. And yet, then you watch these two walk into the church called Ananias and Sapphira and they walk in and they lie. They lie. Straight up they lie. They say, here's, here's all the money that we sold the land for. They told a lie. So what does God do? He strikes them down. Right in front of the whole church. I mean, it was like a, an instant funeral. They struck down. They carried them out. They had their funeral. They were done. One came in. Then the other came in. They both lied. They both were struck down by the fear of God. Now you would think when word got out to Jerusalem at that moment that the church was doomed I'm not stepping foot in that place, man. That place is dangerous because if you even tell just a little white lie, you're going down. Do you know what happens? They grow by 3,000 the next day. Why? Here's why. Because people want that kind of accountability. They want to know the God you serve is real. And if you want to know that He's real, let me tell you a story in Jerusalem back then. This guy comes into our church. He lies about how much money he's giving to us. He tells us he's giving us all of his money, but he really held some back for his own good. And he dropped dead because our God, the living God, the real God, dropped him. You want to know about a living God? That's a living God. That's a God who cares. Yeah, it looks like he's a bad God. But it's a God who has a heart that he doesn't want you to lie. He doesn't want you to tell untruths. He wants you to speak the truth in love. And guess what? 3,000 people come walking into the doors the next day because you know why? The living God was about as real as you're going to get. What about here? What about now? Maybe people want to see the living God. Now, I'm not suggesting that anybody drop dead right here at the altar rail. What I'm, just, what I'm suggesting is maybe you pray. Maybe you ask the Lord, Hey Lord, you know, I've been doing this thing and I feel like I'm doing motion without emotion. I'm asking you, would you fill me with motion and emotion? Would you allow me to come back to those old days when I was so in love with you that I just couldn't stop sharing your good news? Would you fill me up again and really mean it? I got to tell you this past week, I shared with our brothers at breakfast yesterday that, that this past week I've seen this happen. People have called me on the phone and they've told me, you know, Pastor, how I've been praying about this one thing in my life. Guess what? 
God gave it to me. Praise the Lord, He's answering prayer. There was one situation where I was praying for one particular thing, and all of a sudden, God brought it to me while I was praying in my office. That's a living God. He didn't even wait for me to say amen. He just interrupted me and dropped it right there for me. It was huge because I've been struggling. And then to think of two kids who came into our lives and we thought for sure they're going to be, they're, they're going to be ours. And then all of a sudden an aunt came in and, and, and we didn't know where they were going to go. And the aunt told me not three months ago, let me just share this with you and my, from my heart. There is no way we're dropping out of this race. You have a fight on your hands for these kids. Direct quote over the phone. Last Friday, two Fridays ago, Michelle and I sat in an office in Fleetwood, PA, where the aunt told us we're out of the race. They're your kids. You don't believe that God can answer prayer? I've been told more than once, ain't no way it's going to happen. And God has blown open doors that I have never, ever, ever imagined. And we sit sometimes and we wonder, does prayer service really work? Is it really worth having a 424 service? That's why I about jumped out of my shoes when the prayer commission director came to me over the last couple of months and said, I think we ought to move it to Sunday nights. I think we ought to do something. And then I said to her, I heard of this church that did a 424 service. Maybe we can kind of institute the two of them together. Because I believe in the power of prayer. And that God is living and He's doing great and mighty things. The power is evidenced by their finding strength in diversity. The early Christians quickly realized that if their diversity could either be a curse or a source of division, or a source of power. Look, when I look around Faith Church and I look at that front of that bulletin, I see diversity galore. There are people who love sports. There are people who hate sports. There are people who love hunting, and there are people who hate hunting. There are people who love fishing, and there are people who hate fishing. There are people who love social events, and there are people who hate social events. There are people who do this, and they, there are people that hate this. There are people who do this, and there are people who hate this. But guess what? God has you here. And if we can take that diversity, and we can use that diversity to, to bring people to Jesus Christ... What a powerful example that would be to our world. That we are two different people. One person loves this and one person hates this. One person sits on this side of the aisle politically and this person sits on this side of the aisle politically. And yet somehow when it comes to Jesus, we're together, man. That will show a world what a living God looks like. Number three, they discovered the favor of God. 
In Acts chapter 4, verse 33, it says, The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and God's great blessing was upon them all. Because the early disciples were unified in purpose, and because they were committed to the task of reaching and teaching the, the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ, God smiled down with them in favor. In favor. Number four, they were the answer to the prayer of God. I want you to look at John 17, verse 20 through 21 and 23 with me. It's on your sermon outline as well as on the screen. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their message. May they all be one as you, are, Father, are, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be one in us to the world, may, so the world may believe you sent me. I am in them, and you are in me. May they be made completely one. So the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. On the last night of his life, Jesus prayed a prayer that stands as a refuge to all Christians. These words are precious. Knowing the end was near, Jesus prayed one final time for his followers. Striking, isn't it? With death breathing down his neck, Jesus prayed not for his success, not for their success, not for their safety, not for their happiness. He prayed for their unity as they would fulfill His purpose. He prayed that they would love each other so that they went forward to love the world in Him. He prayed for His disciples and for all those who would come to faith in Jesus Christ, becoming His followers. That means you and me. In His last prayer, Jesus prayed that you and I would be one. Of all the lessons we can draw from that powerful point, here's the important point that I want you to understand. Unity matters to God. It does not matter to God that we have our bylaws and right standards. I know. For those that are rule followers, that hurts. It does not matter to God that we meet properly and that we do it by Robert's rules at all times. I know for those that are role followers, it hurts. But I will tell you what matters to God. Unity. The Father does not want His kids to squabble. Disunity disturbs Him. Why? Because by this, all people will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. Unity creates belief. How will the world believe that God sent Jesus? Not if we agree with each other. Not if we solve every controversy. Not if we are unanimous on each vote. Not if we never make a doctrinal error. But if we love each other. If unity creates belief, then disunity fosters disbelief. How can the world come to believe the gospel if those who already believe it are battling among themselves? Disunity is not merely a scandal for unbelievers. It's also a stumbling block for them who are coming to faith. Paul Bilheimer may very well be right when he says the following, 
The continuous and widespread fragmentations of the church has been the scandal of the ages. It has been Satan's master strategy. The sin of disunity probably has caused more souls to be lost than all other sins combined. And isn't it interesting that not once do you see Jesus or the God's Word say, build unity. You won't find it. Check in the Bible. Check me out. Don't trust me. You won't find it. You just preached an entire sermon on unity and you're saying he doesn't say once to build unity. No, he says to keep it. Keep it, not build it. What does that mean? It means it's already here. It means it's already in existence. Keep what you have. Don't build something. Keep it. Don't build it. It's powerful that Jesus never says, church, build unity. But he does say, keep it. Keep it. Keep it. Could it be that unity is the key to reaching the world for Christ? Which leads us to some closing questions, and I'm just going to kind of fly through these. Here's a few key questions that are toe stompers. I'm just going to be honest with you this morning. Number one, how has your attitude and actions helped with the desire of God? Unity mentioned in the sermon this morning. How has it helped? I know mine does not help sometimes. I have to work on that. How about you? Have you spent too much time looking at others and not been able to come to the mirror to look at yourself? I mean, what does Jesus say in that one powerful lesson? He says, look, we spend so much time trying to correct other people, but yet we don't take the plank out of our own eye. So have you done it? Have you looked in the mirror, taken the plank out before you tried to take the little splinter out of somebody else's? How accepting have you been of others who may not think, feel, relate like you do? Have you offered forgiveness to someone that you know right now you harbor hard feelings towards here at Faith Church? Might go a long way. Because again, we're not supposed to build it. We're supposed to keep it. How has your attitude and actions helped with the desire of God? Unity mentioned above, and that's a repeat. Wow, I didn't even catch that until just now. Number three, have you spent... That's a repeat too. Wow, I just repeated everything. Will you go from here remembering who we believe in more so than what we believe in? There's not a repeat. What I mean by that is the world already knows what we disagree with them. But do you want to know or show them what you do believe in? See, if you go out and ask anybody, go ahead, pull them off the sidewalk and ask them, what does the church disagree with? They'll name them. And they'll get them 100%. But if you pull that same person off the, that sidewalk that's never stepped foot in a church and you ask them, what does the church believe in? They will have a hard time coming up with at least two things on that list. Because we've taught them what we disagree with. But we haven't taught them very well what we agree with. Will you allow unity to be favored as we lovingly take the message of Jesus Christ to a divided 
world. I hope you will. I hope today that you've learned that unity is important not to build, but to keep. And that you will do all you can do in your small world to build that unity here at Faith Church and beyond. So that when people walk in, they'll see something different and they'll want what Jesus has given us. Let us close in a word of prayer together. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. It's a messy world out there, Lord, and really it's a a world where we are used as stepping stones. If you can't maneuver me farther into my career, then we throw people out on their backs. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be different here at Faith Church. That we would not be about one another, one, our own selves, but that we would be about one another. That we would not try to build unity, but that we would take what you have given us, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and keep the unity. And that you would just get all the honor, the glory, and the praise for what you do as we work hard trying to do this. It's not going to be easy, Lord, because every one of us have a different perspective. We all come from different lives, different hurts, different pains, and different cuts and wounds. But Lord, you have died for us all the same and were resurrected on that third day for each of us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be unified. Help us to keep what you have given us. For Lord, it's in your name we pray this all. Amen. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly more and abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that is working us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, throughout all ages, world without, uh, without end. Amen.